Come on, man. I wanted to train my core. Oh, my I want to train my core. The C word. And make sure I use the a C- neutral spine. Yeah. You have to be careful. Like, I call the C spine. word and the F word and things like that. People yeah. misunderstand what I'm actually talking about. Have you ever wondered why some athletic endeavors just come so easily to certain people? For instance, some people can just jump out of the gym. Others can run for days and never seem to tire. And some can squat or deadlift the equivalent of a compact car while barely breaking a sweat. Well, if you've ever wondered how body shapes impact your ability to express your movement and athleticism, then this is the show for you. Bill Hartman is known for finding solutions for people in pain that have failed with other forms of treatment. He's the owner of IFAST Physical Therapy and my business partner at IFAST for over 15 years now. But beyond his skills as a physical therapist, he's probably more well-known these days for creating what he describes as the model, which is a truly unique way to look at human movement and what we'll be focusing on in this show. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. Now, Bill and I have been hanging out for over 18 years now, so whenever I can get him on the show to talk shop, you know it's going to be a great time. But more importantly, in this episode, I want to give you some insights into how Bill looks at movement. So if you're new to his system or his model, this will be a great place to start. We're going to start by looking at how the shape of your ribcage and pelvis impact your movement and how it explains what you will or maybe won't be good at. We'll talk about the three planes of movement, sagittal, frontal, and transverse, and why he's narrowed it down to just one. We'll discuss the role of table tests and whether strength coaches and personal trainers should be taking the time to learn more about them. And last but not least, we're going to talk about the role of center of gravity. And while it may not sound that exciting to you, it really impacts everything from your performance to potential areas of injury throughout the body, so it's a critical piece of the puzzle. Quite simply, this is an awesome episode, and I know you're going to love it. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into this awesome new show with my guy, Bill Hartman. One thing Bill Hartman and I have talked about for years now is the power of mentorship. Early on, I didn't have a mentor to shape or guide me, or most importantly, help me find the blind spots in my own training and coaching. But luckily, after many years of trial and error, I found Bill, and my professional success exploded as a result. But the downside to the mentorship process, at least professionally, is that it can be pricey. For private mentees that I work with, it costs anywhere from $3.99 to $5.99 per month to work together. And while I know the results go far beyond that price, the fact of the matter is that just won't work for a lot of folks. So when Bill and I sat down a while back, we asked ourselves a really tough question. How can we help shape the future of the industry and truly make it great? And beyond that, how can we create amazing content yet make it affordable to virtually every trainer or coach out there? And the answer for us was simple. Restart iFast University. Here's what you'll get when you become a member of iFast University. One update each month from myself and Bill. This could cover anything from improving exercise technique to writing better programs and everything in between. Twice per month Q&As, where Bill and I will personally answer your questions to help you become better at training, 
coaching, or even running your fitness business. A Facebook group where you'll be surrounded by like-minded trainers and coaches who are serious about getting better, and access to the iFastU archives, where you'll be able to watch literally hundreds of pieces of content from the iFast team over the years. This blend of content and Q&A is specifically designed to help make you the best trainer or coach possible. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to ifastuniversity.com to get signed on. We'd love to have you on board. Bill, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. It's been a minute, but super excited to have you back on. Could you start by just telling us? I I know, I just saw you. I just saw you, (laughs) but it's been a while since you've been on the show. So let's start there. What's new? Okay. Almost nothing. Yeah. (laughs) My life doesn't change too much. What's new? Well, we got, I got some other stuff going on, like the recon, the reconsider podcast that I'm doing with Chris and then the the recon program, which is the program before the program actually is what that is. Okay. And so, so we're building that out as we speak. Yeah. So that's going really well, actually. Yeah. I like that's the newest, that's the newest stuff other than the iFast evolution, if you will. Like ten point five, really? I mean, technically, it's only three, but it feels like the last three years have been a lot, dude. (laughs) I was talking about this with somebody today. Like, the last three years have been interesting in the fitness space as a whole. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, there's a lot of forced change going on, and then evolution, like we said. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. One other thing: if somebody Mm -hmm. has lived under a rock for the last 20 some years and somehow knows about me and this podcast, but they don't know about you. Yeah. Who are you? What do you do for a living? Who am I? I am a business partner of Mike Robertson. Uh, <laughs> and I <laughs> for the last hundred million years. So we've been doing that. Let's see. I was thinking about this today. My, my intro to the fitness industry is now 36 years ago. Oh my gosh. Yeah, wow. I know that all that does is make me old. <laughs> um, and 32 years, 32 years as a physical therapist. And so, wow. yeah, it's been, a, it's been a while and it's been yeah. a, a big evolution and just investing a lot of time and effort to become something and to offer something of value, Yep. which we do every week, obviously, Yeah. yeah. where we work and then the other stuff that I do. So the mentorship that I do one-on-ones. The intensive, which is the introduction for most people to the way that I see things, the way that I work. And then you throw reconu.co. I should, Chris will be upset if I don't say that out loud. (laughs) Reconu.co is the website for the program before the program. Okay. And then the Reconsider podcast. And then I throw up a podcast. So. We got a lot of stuff going on. We got a lot of balls in the air, but it's all yeah. good. But it's yeah. all part of the, it's all part of like getting to this point, right? Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, spending enough time to have something to offer people that is not just a repeat of, you know, and a regurgitation. Oh, I, I feel right? like we could do a whole show on that. Maybe. If we, wanted, if we just wanted to gripe. <laughs> you know, the world's <laughs> angriest podcast, you know, Cody and them used to have Angry Lunch. Exactly. Have the angry angry Lunch. There you go. There you go. Yeah, you know, I'm, not, I'm not angry about anything. I don't think. I don't think you, you should know? be. I think. I, think, I think, think stands that, for itself. I think the big challenge is to just keep going, keep evolving, yes. keep tr- working for better. And and I, my concern is that I see things. I don't spend a lot of industry time outside of what we do. Right. 
but the stuff that gets sent to me or gets offered or whatever, it just, it, it lacks that evolutionary quality to it. It's yeah. like, we've got a lot of information that's available to us. It's unlimited at this point. Sure. And we're not taking advantage of it. Yeah. And I think that's what we're trying to do is we're just trying to keep pushing everybody to, to keep going in a favorable direction. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to know how long we've been doing this bill? Oh man. Do you realize we had our 15th anniversary like two or three weeks ago and didn't even recognize it in any way, <laughs> shape or form? No party, no announcement, no like, hey, good job, dude. It's just like, yeah, it's another day. It is we're, true. We're it, it, it is. I forgot. I forgot it was, I forgot it was August. We just I, been I did cooking. Too. I did too. Yeah. August 4th. It's like my wife and I forgetting our anniversary on a regular basis. It's like every day is just a great day for us. Yeah. So, you know, same thing. At that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. That's pretty that cool. Is, We've been around that long. That is pretty cool. Okay. So I have just a laundry list of questions right, for you cut. today. And yeah. what I'd like to do is really give people like an overview of your model, you know, different vocabulary. Cause I think there is a learning curve to the vocabulary and it's not mm -hmm. like, you know, the gurus of our day and age, right. Where it was like vocabulary to like make it more annoying or make it like harder to understand. I think it's for you, it's to have a better understanding of what we're really seeing or principles we're trying to apply. So yeah. let's start really foundational here. What mm -hmm. prompted you to create the model? And I put it in it, air quotes because everybody has it, their own. Yeah, it's not like it's intentional. It's an evolution. I've said, I don't know how much evolution, how many times already. <laughs> this is just this is just a process of constantly trying to improve and get better. And then a recognition of where some of the deficits may lie. Yep. Uh, in regards to perspective, because like I said, it's like we've, we've got all of this information and we're not taking advantage of it. And I will give you my my typical, for instance. So the first dissections, the really useful dissections were done 2300 years ago by Greeks. And I can't imagine the archaic nature of how those went compared right. to like our ability to dissect at this point is sure. getting so good. Right. But we're relying on what they went for on the first try. It's like, you, if you're the first guys to do anything, you get to name stuff and such. And we're still using that as a foundational representation. Cadavers are interesting. They're useful, but they're not what we see every day. When we see it clinically or in the gym, when we're talking about the dynamic nature of humans, we have to take into consideration. It's like, well, this is a living, breathing human being that moves. And then I've got a dead guy over here that's laying in a specific position. And then we establish a way to look at that. And then we try to translate it into something dynamic and it doesn't cut it. It's not a sufficient representation. It's really cool to go there and look for stuff. But when we talk about how we actually execute you know, across the ground, in the water, through the air, et cetera. It's like, it's just not the same. And right. so we have to continue to try to look at things from that perspective. But as we do that, we have to change the way we speak about it because it can't be the same. Dead guys don't move. Therefore, they're laying on a table. They represent a certain aspect of how we find things in space. But because they don't move, we can use it. We can use the traditional Cartesian coordinates, that yep. 3D kind of a thing, and we can talk a certain way. And then once we get up and we start to move, those three planes disappear. 
because we are moving through space and forward is always changing directions. And we move through this shape change, if you will, through space. And then that requires a different way. And then, so we have to talk funny, right? We have (laughs) to say things differently because it's not the same as the guy that's over there on the slab that can't move. And so again, I think that's part of it is just appreciating the dynamic nature and how that has to occur based on the constraints of the system, because they're not the same constraints as the cadaver representation. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to bounce around a little bit here because Mm -hmm. I'm such an elite host and I can just kind of (laughs) shuck and jive whatever way I need to, but you know, one, one thing that, that you talk about a lot, and I think a lot of people have issue with, is this idea of the one plane model, right? And everybody that went to school got all three planes. So the next logical question for a lot of people is, where did the other two planes go? Well, they don't exist, first of <laughs> all. So, so again, it's when we have a situation where we have this fixed position. So, so I talk about table tests a lot as a point of reference to establish shape, position, and potential for movement. And under that representation, we can actually control for three planes of movement because we do have a fixed point upon which to measure, which is the table, which is why we call them table tests. And so we're measuring in reference to a table. And so we can say certain things, like we can say flexion, we could say extension, we could say abduction. I try to avoid it whenever I can, but we can still make reference to those for clarity because those are those representations have been around since the beginning of time and they're familiar because it's very difficult. It's very difficult to move people from the familiar to the unfamiliar too quickly. And so we, we can still make reference to those. But when we talk about the dynamic nature of a human, if you just take a step forward, you're going to have to show me where forward is in reference to whatever segment that you're making reference to, because they're not they're like stuff doesn't face the same way. Right. And so when you take a step forward and you say, this is this, and you're telling me three different things. And then I'll say, well, what about this point of reference? So if we move from the extremity and we move up into the axial skeleton, we have a different frame of reference. And so, so right away we have a point of confusion as to what we're talking about, because if you want to stick with it with a, three plane representation, it's like, now you're going to have to say, well, over here, it's over, it's going this way. And if I move up to the sacrum, it's going this way. And if I move up to the cranium, it's going this way. And again, it just, again, it creates this inconsistent representation of what's actually going on. When we start to recognize that all of these things can be represented with turns, then that solidifies the disappearance, if you will, of certain aspects and reinforces the nature of other things. So, so, and I can take the third plane away if you want. It's just, you've got to leave something in there again to sort of grab onto. And so then we start talking about internal and external rotations. And when we look at what would be referred to as straight plane movements, what we have is cancellations of these turns or interference of these turns through other means. And so that's why I tend to, I talk about two strategies in one plane and then people have extrapolated. That's all I ever talk about. Right. (laughs) right. And so then they call it, they call this something, which it's not, it's really not what a lot of people, the people that have never had a conversation with me that that talk about this stuff really don't know what they're making reference to. They're using a very limited perspective. The goal here is to create a universal model that takes all of these things into consideration in regards to 
you know, the fluid mechanics, the shape change, the pressures, the volumes, direction of acceleration, right? We have to bring all, yeah. the, all of the physics elements into this. And then once we can do that, we can actually construct a much more useful dynamic model that we can apply to any system. Yeah. Right. So, so I don't talk about, I don't talk about systems because I don't care about them because it doesn't matter because all systems are limited in what they have to offer. But if we have a stronger representative model that's closer and closer to reality or the truth, however you want to look at it, then we have something that's useful that allows us to make better decisions, apply better interventions and therefore improve our outcomes. Well, I feel like I can speak to this since we ran our heads against numerous walls, trying different commercial systems, trying different, trying to apply different models. Right. And we would always get to this point where it's like, this just, to, this isn't yeah. explained well, or what do we do now? Like we'd run yeah. into a roadblock and it's like, well, this isn't changing the way that we would like. Right. And then like, when you, like you, I'm sorry, when you Go step ahead. back, no, when you step back and you can rely on just pure like physical principles, right? It makes right. what you're doing so much easier because sometimes the strategy doesn't fit into this really nice, tidy algorithm. Well, it, a lot of things, a lot of things get dirty, you know, in regards to perspectives and measurements. And you know, when you're dealing with humans, then there's a lot of other things that from a multifactorial standpoint that are influences that, yep. that prevent you from being able to default into what, what has been structured as a system. And so I'm just, I just want to remove the limitations as much as possible and get closer and closer to the truth of how we behave, especially in regards to, to movement, that there, there are, you know, foundational elements that are consistently produced regardless of the activity in question. Yeah. And we can, you can take any of those systems that we've been exposed to and we can actually use them if we wanted to probably more effectively than what was initially yeah. intended because we do have a stronger representation of reality, I think. Yeah. And again, I have a, I will be the first person to admit that I have the world's biggest cognitive bias in regards <laughs> to how I, well, I mean, I, I do, it's a battle because it is, I am the limitation on my own process sure. because of it, but at least I'm aware of it. And so, so I can challenge it. And, but this is one of the reasons why, you know, I speak in public about these things is because I want to throw it out there. I want people to come back and say, but what about this? What about this? And what I should be able to do is answer those things coherently if I am close enough to reality. And so far, so good. It's been really good. Yeah. It's consistent feedback, right? On the process and where you're at Absolutely. with things. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when somebody is new to your world and somebody's like, where do I start? Because a lot of times, I don't know if you get these questions. I think I get these questions for you. People are like, yeah. oh, I love Bill's work. Where should I start? And I say, literally go to YouTube and just go to his page and just type in ISA and just start making notes on wides versus narrows. So I would love for you to just break down your two archetypes and uh -huh. explain those a little bit. Give us the ends of the spectrum, because I think it makes it very yeah. easy to understand when you've got those polar opposites. Well, okay. So, so it's really important that you understand that we're always talking about the extremes because we have yep. to have an extreme representation. And one of the key elements of understanding in regards to anything is that we have to respect the constraints of what is possible. 
And then that falls back onto our, our human structure. So when I went to school, everybody was the same. That was the assumption is that, oh, they had norms. And I would argue that they're not norms. The norms short for normals. I would argue that they were averages. So they took a bunch of people, they did a bunch of measurements and they said, well, these are the averages. And so if you've ever, if you've ever seen what this distribution looks like, you have this big chunk in the middle of people that fall close to the average and then it gets narrower as you move away. And the further you move away from the extremes, the stronger the representations become in regards to how the constraints may limit or enhance certain capabilities. And so that's what I was doing. When, so when I constructed the two archetypes, I was looking for a representation of the two extremes. Thankfully, it falls into a categorization that we can stay consistent with a single plane representation is that we have these strong internal rotations and we have these strong external rotations. So what all I need is the representations of the two extremes. And so, so this became superimposed with other elements of the, me the mechanical side of things. And so now you start to look at fluid mechanics. So air represents a fluid. And then now we say, okay, so there's this change that's taking place on a regular basis where air is certainly involved. And so now we have this expression of inhalation and exhalation and that would represent the two extremes of a volumetric change. So this is the volumetric change that we can actually make short of, you know, bloodletting or something like that. And so now we, so we look at, well, I, if I have this inhaled representation and this exhaled representation, then what does that mean structurally? And so we all go through it to a degree. If we're a living, breathing human being, we all have an inhalation and exhalation. And so we all move toward and away from the extreme of the archetypes. But some of us are physically biased to be really strongly biased in, in one direction. One of the easiest way to see the differences in representations, I always refer people to like the Olympics. All you have to do is watch a very specific sport like swimming or something like that. And you see a very specific structure. So they always do the intros of swimmers, you know, but before the race and yep. they all have the same cap on, goggles, suit, and you can't tell the difference between any of them, except they have their, maybe their name and their flag, their country flag on their head, you know, and so then you can distinguish that. But there's a reason that those structures are selected for those sports because the sport is very specialized and therefore a certain structure will be biased towards being best for that. And so the people that are pre-selected by their parents and then luckily follow a path that allows them to discover their superpowers based on their physical structure will be represented at the highest levels of sport. So that's kind of what we're doing is we're saying it's like, okay, these physical structures mean something. And the more we can understand the constraints, and the more we can understand the extremes, the better we can understand everything between the two. So if there's 8 billion people on earth, there is one person that would be the representation <laughs> of the most extreme narrow ISA archetype. And then there would be one that would be representative of the wide ISA archetype. And that's who we're always talking about when we're talking about comparing wides and narrows to help us better understand everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. It's really helpful having that distinction between the two, because again, like you alluded to, the law of averages tells you there's a big curve in the middle right? Kind yeah. of like a bell curve. Right. But when you have, if you want to understand this at its highest level, you got to understand the extremes first, and then you just right. track backwards. Because one of the things you always talked about is it's not just so much the archetype, it's the behaviors that underlie the archetype. 
Right. And so you have to understand those two in conjunction if you want to start understanding the model and understanding how to train your clients and athletes more effectively. Right, right. Because the constraints become what is possible. Yes. Right. So if I can just sort of progress on that. Yeah. You look at like like the narrow versus the wide. We have different pressurization capabilities. It doesn't mean that either archetype can't do what the other one can do. It just means that their bias is much stronger in one representation. So if we took like a wide ISA individual, we can pick an extreme of like an American football offensive lineman. Great representation of a wide ISA. Very high pressure, very high force, very forceful into the ground. And yep. then you take the opposing representation, take your top end wide receiver, which would be sort of like your narrow. They're kind of bouncy across the ground. They're, they are more velocity based lower pressure, they can leave the ground much easier. And so again, it's like you look at those two extremes and then you start to say, oh, well, this is why this wide receiver never became an offensive lineman is because <laughs> right. he just like, and it, then it becomes obvious. It's well, clearly this guy could, this guy would get his ass handed to him if he was an off offensive lineman. And there's no way that this offensive lineman can run nearly as fast as this wide receiver. Now, it doesn't mean that the offensive line can't be fast. I mean, you watch the NFL combine and you'll see, you know, you'll see a five flat 40 out of somebody that's approaching the wide ASA archetype. But if you want the, you know, the top end speed, it's going to be the guys that are much more built for it. And again, we have to appreciate the fact that they do things differently. And so then their behavior through space is going to be different. How they execute is going to be different. That's all we're doing is appreciating from a foundational representation appreciating how the constraints influence the outcomes. I love it. Okay. So let's take this one step further because we have archetypes, but then sometimes I think people get archetypes and configurations confused, right? Yeah. Or they just kind of yeah. overlap them and think they're the same thing. So could you explain configurations and how that impacts how people move as well? Yeah. So, so configurations influence the internal dynamics so you got stuff inside of you. So we always talk about the outside stuff. It tends to be a little bit easier to measure, although there's other things that show up that, that give us a really good representation of internal dynamics. But generally speaking, it's like how fast do things move inside of you? What direction do they move inside of you, either to, to your advantage or to your disadvantage? And, and so we have to appreciate that. So if you were just a big bag of water, which the water bags are like really popular right now. Yep. For good reason. But it's a cool representation of some of the internal dynamics that, that allow us to, again, make some really good decisions. But you see that stuff kind of slosh around inside the bag and you can feel the momentum. We don't get quite the sense of it because we've been managing it for a long time as human beings. But what the configurations do is they'll say, oh, so the way that the stuff inside of a marathon runner moves differently than the inside of a power lifter. And that would be absolutely correct. Those are really good representations. So, so, and again, you look at the physical structure. So we could skew somebody in one direction in regards to archetype versus the other. But you think about how efficient a marathon runner needs to be. Well, there has to be a structure that supports that efficiency. And so the configuration is what allows those dynamics to move in, in such a way that they can maintain a ridiculous rate of movement, which is a pressure that goes into the ground, a turn, cancellations of turns and such. 
that allows them to be very efficient. So, so their internal dynamics have to allow the internal behaviors to be up and down like a piston, yeah. right? Whereas if I have a power lifter, the chances of them leaving the ground in the super heavyweight class is pretty slim, right? It's not really important that they leave the ground and they're a very high pressure system. And so you'll see a difference in the, the shape and the influence that controls those internal dynamics, again, for their benefit. But again, it's like it's interference for something else where I have this high pressure system with a you know wide ISA archetype, right? And But I don't want guts that are bouncing around. I want them very compressed because the more I can compress those internal dynamics, the more stuff I can stack on top of them. Yeah. Right. So, so I affectionately refer to the, if we looked at the power lifters configuration, I would call them a pillar because you can step, you can stack a lot of stuff on top of a pillar. And then you look at the configuration for the marathon run as a piston. And if, again, if you use those two mental representations, they allow you greater degrees of clarity as to what types of activities you're going to be number one biased towards as far as being exceptional at. And then what would be detrimental under those circumstances? Yeah. I think this is highlighted so well for me when you started like putting all this together and mm -hmm. it's physical representations that we've probably seen for decades. Right. And some guys are just like, wow, that guy can jump out of the gym. Like this was probably six years ago, something like that. I'm looking at all these basketball guys. I'm like, why are all these guys that can jump out of the gym kind of broad shouldered, but like their pelvis and hips are like tiny. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. It's just, like this incredible rebound or vice versa. You get the kid that's like the bench warmer on like the sixth grade team and they look like a pylon, right? right. And you're like, right. oh man, Susie's just got slow feet, right. you know? And it really helps you understand, oh wow, like this makes a huge impact on how people move and their athleticism. Well, the assumption is that gravity is going to affect everybody the same way, right? Because we define it, yes. we define it as an absolute acceleration, but, but we're not taking into consideration those, number one, the physical shape, as to where pressures are applied. So, so literally we'll have people that, that are more stuck towards the ground because of that, that, that physical structure. And there's people that, that have a tremendous advantage to leave the earth. So yeah. we've seen plenty of those that have come through the gym. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Earlier on, you mentioned table test. Mm -hmm. I definitely want to touch on this topic because I know a lot of trainers and therapists alike, they follow your work, they follow your YouTube and they're like, Oh man, you know, I want to do more table testing, but if a trainer has gone, they've got a sir, or maybe they have a degree in, you know, exercise science, they've never tested somebody on a table in their life. Should they learn how to do that? And, you know, if not, how can they still use your model and your system to derive results? Cause I think this is some people are always like, Oh, I got to get better at table testing. I'm like, maybe, but maybe, maybe. not. Well, I think maybe it's a good, maybe it's a, a pretty good answer. The, yeah. the goal is actually to not have to do them, right? But to get to that point, you have to understand them. Yes. As to what they represent. And so, yeah. so we talk about a chess board. So, so chess is a very objective, technical game. There are definitely specific paths to follow, right? It's much like we're playing poker. That's a person to person kind of a thing. There's a lot of probability that you have to take into consideration. Table tests, we try to be as absolute as we can. And again, yeah. we have to be reliable with ourselves. But ultimately, understanding them is the key element. Execution, I think everybody should move towards that. Like to have some 
capability to do that. Because there might be a certain circumstance that would show up that it would be helpful. But is it absolute? Absolutely not. I don't think that's the case. But I do think you need to understand that because each of the table tests provide you a representation of how the constraints are interacting with their ability to access space for movement and how to apply pressure into the ground. That's what they're for. They give us this. So we have this representation relative to a table, again, a point of reference. When I was in school, to make another reference to this, it's like everybody was, the assumption is that everybody is the same laying on the table. Certainly not the circumstance. Right. You, again, just from our typical standpoint, we have differences in structure. From relationships and management of gravity, we have difference in, in motor outputs that are going to actually change the shape and the position of certain elements of the system, even when they're laying on the table. Because these are learned strategies and learned behaviors of execution that are maintained even when I change the position in many circumstances. Okay. And so, so this is where the value lies is it allows us to construct the relationships of how the system is behaving under certain circumstances. Once I understand that, what I should be able to do from an evolutionary standpoint of process, understanding, application, miserable failures, and then variable outcomes is I should be able to understand how those table tests would be represented during any dynamic movement. That's the ultimate goal is to be able to do that. That takes time, that takes process. And as I said, it takes miserable failures and a lot of outcomes. Because I tell you what, we were just on an IFASTU call today and one of the guys was on there and I was talking through a sequence of activities that he would possibly use. And I gave him what would happen if you use the wrong activity at the wrong time. To his, I was thrilled. To, to his situation, he did the wrong thing. He got an outcome, but he understood what happened mm. because he understood what the possibilities were. So he did an intervention and literally pushed somebody in the wrong direction in regards to the desired outcome. So he actually set them back, but he recognized that. It was exceptionally cool. It's going to happen all the time because you're dealing sure. with humans. But what it does is it gives you a lot of perspective as to, okay, the next time this situation shows up, I know that if I do this intervention, here's what one of the possibilities are. So I went from playing chess to playing poker. I lost, but that loss taught me something. Yep. And so that's always going to happen. We're never going to be perfect. All measurements on the table are dirty. All movements are multifactorial. We always have to take that into consideration. But the goal is to start to shift the probabilities in our favor. And that's why understanding the table test become important. Application will become important if you want to move in that direction. But at least the understanding in a dynamic nature is ultimately the goal. Yeah. So if somebody did want to learn table tests, they uh -huh. have no background, but they've listened to your stuff and they're like, uh -huh. no, I want to, I'm going to invest the time. Where would they even start? What would be a good well there are standardized tests there are standardized tests that you can follow right i mean right. there's i don't know how many resources there would be for that and but ultimately there's and there's different types of reliability and what you're looking for is to be reliable with yourself so the way that you execute these tests are consistent and that again that just takes repetition and practice execution failures you'll you will go through a process just like everybody does. I always compare myself to, you know, my first year. So I've been a therapist for 32 years, but I did have a year one. 
<laughs> like everybody right, else. Right. Did, yeah. Where I was horrible. <laughs> right. I feel so sorry. I feel so sorry <laughs> for those people. And the way I would have taken those measurements into consideration 32 years ago are, are far away from the perspective that I would use today. The, their meaningfulness is quite different. My execution is more precise with intention. Like all measures are dirty. Like they're not accurate measures. Right. But I'm consistently reliable with myself that allows me to make the better decision because the representations that I create from those measures are, again, more meaningful versus where I was just making the assumption, like they said in school, it's like, oh, they're laying on the table. He's like, you're just measuring a hip. And it's like, I know that I'm not measuring a hip anymore. When I measure a hip, I'm measuring a system's behavior. And so there are multiple influences that go far beyond just the hip under that circumstance. And thankfully, the way that I've been able to determine how these measures are actually created allows me to understand the the strategies far and away better than I ever have. Yeah. Well, I think it starts with getting a foundation, right? Understanding the test, how to apply them. And then the long game is like the nuance and the interpretation, like that, the details that really Everybody thinks that they can do this quickly. Yeah. Everybody thinks that they're, oh, like, where's the book that explains the archetypes? It's like, well, that was a construction of mine based on a representative model, right? Right. And so- so there are thousands of pieces of it scattered throughout the <laughs> literature. And then you throw 32 years of experience on top of it. It's like, it took a while to get here. Now you can get here faster. There's no question about that. It's like, we definitely have paths that will lead people to, to this process faster, but you still got to do the diligence. You still got to yeah. put in the work. You got to put in the time because it's ultimately going to be your interpretation of this information that's going to lead you to make decisions and apply interventions. It's not like there's a cookbook for it, right? right? The, right. You know, the first time you run into, and it happens to me every clinic day where there's something that will arise that you have to sit down and you go, well, let me take a step back. Let me put these pieces together. And it's like, okay, based on what I think I understand, what am I actually looking at? What would be the best course of action? And again, initially, you know, you're going to be 18% right and then 82% wrong. (laughs) And then the goal is to flip-flop that over time. Yeah. Because that's really what happens. That's really what happens, right? Well, And it's not as simple as like treat everybody the same. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. and that's the difference too between having just general knowledge that you've assimilated and consumed versus the experience and having the reps and knowing how all this fits into the bigger picture. Right. Right. Yeah. And again, there's a lot of pieces and again, this is okay. If you were going to become a a martial artist, can you like from scratch, can you imagine all of the things that you would have to learn to get the the execution of any particular art or a combination of arts to the point where it is below the level of conscious thought where it needs to be. You have attempted to play the guitar. I know this for a fact, and I am now the worst guitar player in the world. So, so we both have that in common. And again, it's like the investment that it takes to be great at it is far beyond what I will. I mean, I will die the worst (laughs) guitar player in the world because the amount of time that it would take to to process this and take it to a level where literally, if you can whistle a tune, it's like, you ever think about like how you know how to position your mouth and your tongue and how much air to use to produce the correct tones. And a lot of people can do it. They can whistle any song that they hear, but they don't know how they do it. It's like, that's where you got to get to. 
And the only way that you get to is through this endless amount of repetition and paying attention, making mistakes, correcting those and repeating for an extended period of time. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Even with a master's degree in sports biomechanics, I'm not sure we spent more than one day talking about the gait cycle, mm-hmm. foot contact mm-hmm. in movement. Yeah. And this is something I know you spend a lot of time on. Yeah. In fact, Jen Reiner had a great post the other day just talking about the importance of foot contacts and you know getting the right input from the ground up to really create shape change and get things working the way that you want. So without going into a really long diatribe, would you just give us a brief breakdown of the gait cycle and maybe why finding foot contacts is so important for improving movement? Well, hang on, this is my earphone. Well, let's, let me throw up some useful jargon your way. I like you. Okay. Um, I don't talk about the gait cycle. <laughs> I talk about propulsion, which is moving forward through space in contact with the medium. Okay. Because we have the same behaviors. If you're swimming, you're actually using the exact same behaviors. It doesn't look mm. the same, but the behaviors are the same whether right. we're swimming or whether we're walking. So, so we can talk about walking, but what we have to, what we have to understand is that the position of the foot changes as you move through this contact with the ground. I have to be able to absorb energy at one end and I have to be able to provide energy in another space to allow me to move forward through space. And so this requires that we have differences in the representation of the shape of the foot because there is a, a foot that is easily uh, absorbing energy and we have a foot that would easily produce energy. So we have changes in connective tissue behavior. We have different spaces that we're stepping into. And so if I was just to step forward with my right foot and my foot makes contact the ground, the perception is that foot is out in front of me. The reality is it's not, but your desire to move in that direction could be represented as forward. But if we looked at the remainder of the skeleton, it's actually away from midline. So it puts me in an externally rotated space. And so we have a foot that would be representative of this external rotation. There would also be a certain amount of muscle activity that's associated with this type of a foot. Typically, it would fall into what would be often categorized as a supinated supinated foot. But what we have to understand is that because I'm pushing into the ground, I'm also superimposing internal rotation on top of this externally rotated representation of a foot. So you have to have both. I have the space to step into, and I have to be able to push into the ground at the same time. And so this requires that I have certain amounts of contact with the ground. And so these are the what we talk about with bony contacts on the top of the ground. So if you were to step forward, and let's just say you stayed on the pinky toe side of your right foot, that would certainly be an ER representation. There is an element of internal rotation that's being applied to the ground, but the degree to which the bias is so strongly in one direction, it would not allow a reduction of motor output that we need to absorb the energy effectively. So this becomes a very rigid foot and we have a direction, if you will, of the energy that we need to absorb from the ground to allow us to move forward that doesn't actually move towards the center of the body as we would. And so this is why we always talk about medial foot contacts. So when you step forward, I have to have these ground contacts available to me because I have to direct the energy in a very specific way so I can 
efficiently absorb energy and then redirect it. It's a lot like a jet engine. So a jet engine takes air in from the front, spits it out the back, and then that's the propellant. For us, we have to take energy that we take from our interaction with the ground. We have to sort of suck it up into our own tissues, and then we have to spit it back out. That allows us to propel ourselves forward. So if we look at the two ends of a step, so I have one where my foot's out in front of my center of mass, and I have one that appears that, the, that my center of mass is now in front. The difference between those is I have tissues that can absorb energy when the foot is in front of my center of mass, and I have a foot that can deliver energy as my center of mass is in front of my foot. So those are the two, two biggies as far as the ability to propel myself forward. But there's also a spot that's in the dead center middle. Yep. And this is one of the cool things. This is one of the cool things about the propulsive cycle is that I have this superimposition of internal rotation on external rotation under most circumstances. And then in this dead center middle, I have this massive amount of downforce that goes into the ground and it's straight into the ground, uh, which requires that I have a certain shape to my foot. This is going to fall more towards the pronated representation. And we got to be really careful with how we express this. So this is not a foot that would necessarily be crushed into the ground. It's pushing into the ground rather aggressively. The arch representation of that foot would be much lower than it would be at either ends of this step, but it's not going to be a collapse, if you will. Right. Yeah. The way the pronation was always described to me in school, it's like, oh, it's an accommodative foot. It's this loose bag of bones. It is to a point. Um, so as you move towards this middle representation of propulsion, the foot actually has to loosen because what it's going to do is it's going to shape itself to the surface of the ground. Yep. And then there's a split second where there's this massive amount of down force that goes into the ground that turns your foot into one giant contact. And this is where there's a massive amount of energy that's stored because motion actually stops under this circumstance. Time actually comes to a halt. There is this expression of force into the ground, and there is a massive amount of energy that's going to be released in the next split second that allows you to propel yourself forward. And so so what we have is the situation of energy absorption, application of force into the ground, and then the energy being released. And those are the that's the three phases that you'll see in the propulsive cycle. There's a quick, fast, and dirty one in there that a split second in time that we don't really need to talk about right now because it's just not important as far as the foot shape because it doesn't really change the three positions that we would talk about in the propulsive cycle. But that's generally what we're talking about when we're talking about foot contacts with the ground. Yeah. It's just really interesting because I know you and I have seen a lot of athletes, a lot of different sports over the years, and you hear people talk about, oh, that person's got, you know, really overly pronated foot or supinated foot. And then again, not understanding like, but that could be a performance enhancing foot based on their sport. Well, so, so differentiating between relative motion in the foot and then the connective tissue behaviors. So you could take a foot that has an arch in it. Okay. And jam it into the ground, like with a lot of force. So there's people that will athletes, especially. So this is where you learn a lot in regards to how athletes actually do things is you might see an athlete that you go, Oh man, he's got a really ugly foot. He's got a low arch. looks like it looks like a flat foot. And what you actually got there is you got a foot that's really close to where they would apply the maximum amount of force into the ground. Yep. 
because there's a time factor involved from the point of contact with the floor till you push into the ground with maximum force. That's time. And there's a lot of athletes that can move very quickly. And so if they started with a very high arch and then they have to move this foot position into the position where they would apply this maximum force into the ground, it's slow if they have a high arch. So what you'll see is you'll see a lot of athletes that have a foot that's already very close to the ground. And we had a kid that came through. I know you know who I'm talking about. I'm just not going to mention his name. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he had arguably the world's second ugliest feet on the ground. Like yep. people would look at that and go, ooh, you know, you're a little sick to your right. stomach when you look at this foot. And then you find out that he ran a 4440. Yep. <laughs> and then you say, well, how can you do that with this foot? And then that's where the question becomes. That's where you start with the question. It's like, okay, under normal circumstances, I might not appreciate this foot. But how is he using this to his advantage? Clearly, he's got a, he's got a physical advantage, right? Physical yeah. structure, motor output, force capabilities, velocity, etc. But if I've got this kind of foot, it's clearly not interfering. Yeah. If it's not interfering, then how is it helping? And th that's the question that you start to ask. And this is why you start to see it's like th this is the this is a mechanical advantage foot. This is not something that I'm definitely going to manipulate. I'm going to manage it because I know it could get worse. Yep. And that's the thing that, that we got to be really careful of is that we don't take away somebody's superpowers that when they walk in the door, because it can happen. Yeah. You know, we drive too much force capability through a physical structure that, that has a limit to from, a, especially from a time perspective, we, we have to talk about time and time into the ground. There's a certain amount of time where applying force in the ground is useful. And then beyond that, it becomes interference. Yeah. And so that's why we have to be really careful. Because if I have a foot that goes too far in one direction, I've increased the duration of the time into the ground. Now they're slow. Or if I take away their force producing capabilities, now they can't apply the same amount of force into the ground within the time constraint and I've slowed them down. And so yeah. this way, you know, blindly chasing force production can be detrimental to the athlete. Yes. Okay. So this last one's going to go kind of hand in hand with this. There are many times I feel like a broken record when I'm assessing a new client, new athlete, and we're talking about shifting their center of gravity back. Uh -huh. Right. And you and I have talked about this. You know, they're doing every hip mobility drill uh -huh. under the sun. They're every ankle mobility drill under the sun. They're doing yoga to relieve their back pain. Talk to me about the importance of I don't talk about like like it's management. Right. Talk to me about the importance of managing your center of gravity. Yeah. So this goes along with what we were just talking about in regards to, to foot shapes and then behavior, because we're often talking about time. Yep. So the application of force per unit or times time into the ground. So the duration of an impulse. If we say what lost my train of thought, got the new dog in the room. So yeah. Do you want to pause for a second and let him out or no, no, it, it doesn't work that way with this one. Oh. <laughs> so, so let's back up, ask me the question again yes. so I can get a running yep. start at it. Yeah, no, I got you. You can probably hear the squeaks okay. in the background. Yeah, no, it's okay. Okay, so there are many times I feel like a broken record. I'm assessing a new client, new athlete, and we're talking about shifting their center of gravity back. <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah. they've been told they need to do every hip mobility drill under the sun. They need right. to mobilize their ankles more or do yoga to relieve their lower back pain. Right. So talk to me about the importance of managing your center of gravity. Yeah. Okay. So, so here's where most of these athletes are going to be showing up, which is why it always feels like you're doing the same stuff in, in many cases. 
So they're going to be biased towards how quickly they can apply force into the ground and then move in a direction. And so this is going to bias them towards the back end of the propulsive cycle. And so, but we have to understand where this is. So as they move from this direct force application into the ground, where the foot moves behind them, it's not behind them. It's away from midline. So, so they're actually moving in a direction away from the foot as the foot moves away from the center. Yeah. Okay. Out there is ER space. Okay. The ability to turn inward, so internally rotate to push into the ground, right? Means that I am dissipating that capability under those circumstances. So if the center of gravity stays forward, you are going to lose the ability to push force into the ground. So this is one of the reasons why you see compensatory strategies. Let's pick on sprinters for a second because it's really obvious there. Show me a high level sprinter that does not have an anteriorly oriented pelvis. Right. Doesn't exist because it's a necessary compensatory strategy because they have to push so hard into the ground in the shortest time possible. And then they need to cycle their legs incredibly quickly. So yep. they have to move through velocity. Velocity is going to live in ER. The downforce is going to be within what? 0.8 to 0.11 seconds, I believe, in high level sprinters. That's almost no time at all. And so I have to use compensations to produce the downforce, which means I also have to have the ability to move out away from midline exceptionally quickly. And so, so there's one of the bias. And so where this shows up is the people that always complain about tight hip flexors, the ability, the inability to internally rotate a hip through traditional testing. Because again, they spend so little time in internal rotation that they slowly give that up over time. They move further and further away from midline and they increase the orientation of the pelvis to allow them to push down. Within a certain range, it's gold. Yep. It's tremendously high performance. You cannot apply maximum force into the ground with full relative motions. Full relative motion is at the front end of this propulsive cycle. And this is where we absorb force, but at, we also use it for a dampening effect. So it's, that's also how you slow down. All you got to do is run forward as fast as you can and then try to come to a stop as quickly as possible. You will find that you got to put your feet out in front of you. You got to drop your center of gravity and you have to absorb and then dampen this energy out into the ether to come to a stop. Sprinters don't do that until they cross the tape, right? right. They're constantly pushing into the ground. And so we have a lot of, IR orientation for downward force production, but we also have an increase in the ER orientation away from midline. And so this results in a traditional representation of a loss of motion. But this is also why we need to understand archetype, configuration, and then we have to understand how this is going to be applied in context. Because again, if we try to get too much hip internal rotation in a high level sprinter, we just slowed them down because yeah. we increased the duration of the dampening which is what we don't want because even though the ground contact time is again within microsecond, right? They still have to go through an energy absorption, maximum force into the ground and energy release. They just do it in this amazingly compressed time, which is why we need the orientations, but we need to manage those. Yeah. I'm thinking of a certain gentleman you and I saw for, at least one off season might've played for an NFL football team. Uh -huh. And I'm just thinking back to when you eval him uh -huh. and he was sitting at, I think like minus 10 yeah. hip IR. Hip IR. And, I know exactly uh, who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. And 
you know, we were having a discussion after the fact where whiteboarding his program and we want to do this and this. And you said, man, if I could just get him to like 20 degrees of hip IR, yeah. I'm thrilled. Yeah. And at the time, again, I, I'm not the table tester you are. I obviously didn't have the same like thought process. And I'm like, well, but the norms are 40. And you're like, if this dude's at 40, he's slow. Yeah. He's going yeah. into a cut and he's coming out super slow. Like, yeah. no, like 20 would be a sweet spot. And I, the point that I'm making here is this, what's a norm for an average human being yeah. should not be your norm for a high level athlete. And I think that's something right. that people tend to assume as well yeah. is that what works for one group for the average works for the elite. And that's not the case either. Right. Yeah, we use averages for comparisons so yep. we can identify where this person is in space, right? But we never see average. Like you and I never see average. Never, never. Right? Well, people that are skewed at one end where their physical structure is detrimental to just normal management of gravity and they become physical therapy patients. And then we see the other extreme where we have the superheroes that come in that do amazing things where they can jump four feet off the ground because of their physical structures. And, and so, yeah, this is one of those things that, that we always have to take into consideration that everybody's measures are idiosyncratic. Mm, and again, this goes yep. back to the beginning of the discussion where we're talking about averages versus norms. It's like, like the norm is whatever you are and, yep. and wherever you perform to the greatest degree and whatever gives you the best strategy within a specific context. And again, it comes back to constraints. It comes back to how those constraints behave. It comes back, comes back to the mechanical elements that we need to understand. You know, it's like, that's why we have to spend, you know, time understanding who Isaac Newton was because we use him <laughs> right. a lot. We use him a lot because even though he might be incorrect about a few things, it's very useful. Yes, man. I spent the greater part of my childhood and adult life trying to get away from physicists. You know, my dad was in the physics and astronomy department. I was trying to get away from it all this time and just can't get away from it, dude. It's staring gotta in have the face. It. It's staring kinda, in the face. Gotta yeah. have it. Yeah. Okay. One more, one more big question and then a lightning round. We'll wrap it up. So you're now multiple years deep into the model and refining it and evolving it. Yeah. What did you wish you knew earlier and what are you working on now to make it even more robust? Like what's the next level? I'm working on making it digestible mm. more than anything else. Yep. That's the hardest thing. It's easy to do when you lock somebody in a room sure. for four days. Yeah. Right? It's not fun. <laughs> it takes about two and a half days of hearing this stuff over and over again. So you start to create the structure in your head and start to see these things. But the hard thing to do is, again, just making it digestible. You know, some of the stuff that I, the, the content that I produced is helpful and useful. Clearly it's helpful and useful because like, yeah. like the coffee and coaches calls on Thursday. And I get people that are loaded for bear on that with really good questions. We see it in IFSU. We see really good questions. But to widen the reach, we, it, it, you just have to have a little bit of a better story that, that it makes it a, it's not about simplifying it. It's literally just about making it clear. Yeah. And so, so that's where I'm spending a great deal of time to give more people access to it. Like, it's kind of like I said before, it's like, you're going to have to invest time. There's like, there's no question you got to invest time in this. Right. This is not going to be a 30 day exposure. And like, oh, I know all of this. Like there was one dude, <laughs> he sent me a video. 
this Bill Hartman's model is 50 seconds or less. It's like, you know nothing about my model. Clearly. <laughs> Probably somebody you've never even met. <laughs> I didn't recognize the guy. But again, it's, it's like, that's the stuff that I get. But at least it will establish a progressive exposure that will allow more people to understand and apply. That That's the current goal, is to do that. I love it. And so, okay. so that's where I spend time. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So lightning round. I'm real. I'm really excited about this actually, oh, but man. I'm going to go off course for this first one. Okay. If somebody wants to get started with your stuff, uh-huh. like somebody's fresh trainer, uh-huh. you know, barely shaving, yep. got like two clients, but they yep. want to start like, where do you tell them to start? Just, it doesn't matter where you start, but it, it like you, it starts with a question. It always starts with a question. Yeah. If you don't have a question, you're not ready. You just, you want to know something that's new and shiny and things like that. It's, you have to attach emotion to something. Otherwise you're not going to learn. And it, it, it is emotional because this is not easy to understand with any number of exposures. Right. Yeah. And so, but it has to start with a question because if there's no, if there's no reason for you to know this, then Anything that you're exposed to will be meaningless and you will pass it by and you'll say, oh, I don't need that. It's not for you. Number one, yeah. it's not for you. But if you have a burning question that you're trying to answer, then, you know, you start with any of the resources like get on IFASU for one, go to the YouTube channel and go back through like all the video and audio. But ask a question first. Don't just sit there and try to blindly go through videos because that's tedious and boring and (laughs) kind of ridiculous like that's not the way to learn anything the best way to learn anything is i have this question that i really want to answer i'm struggling to answer it i'm trying to answer it yourself always do that first so you have a comparative analogy and then you say where can i get this other bit of information then you go to something that, that already exists there's a lot of stuff to go through that already exists to start your process but then once you've had the exposure then you know, something that's going to be a little bit more structured, like, again, like I fast you, the intensive, etc. Yeah, I'm just going to chime in and feel free to disagree with me. But mm-hmm. this is the advice I've given a couple people that uh-huh. have asked me and this I've actually done this. And I think it's quite helpful. When I have had a question that I've wanted to ask you, but mm-hmm. people would assume, oh, he'll just go ask him. I don't <laughs> because I don't want a lot of times you're working out, you're with clients or patients. So one of the things that I've done, and I think it actually helps me craft better questions is I will go to your YouTube and I will just search on a topic, right? Like if I'm really into squats, I'm just going to type in the word squat and you've created a video for a lot of things, Yeah, probably multiple. So you could get 15 videos just on the squat. If yeah. you have knee pain, 15, 20 videos on knees, if you're yeah. interested in archetypes. So I think, Going in with something that, like you said, you, there's got to be like a passion or a question there, right. or maybe like a personal injury that you're dealing with, right. because then you've got some skin in the game. And I think you learn those things better. And if you watch numerous videos, then it starts to make sense. And yeah. then it's like, okay, well, I understand this maybe a little bit. Now I'm going to go dive into this other area. Right. But like you said, you got to have one question or like one area of interest to kind of right. start with and be focal. Yeah. And then you can start to widen your circles from there. Yeah, because so learning anything should never be easy. Because if yeah. it's easy, you're probably not learning anything. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it, th- this is the unfortunate reality. And again, because of the quantity of information that's available and the fact that probably everything that everything that we are aware of and know of is probably available, right? Yeah. You just got to be able to find it. Right. A lot of people don't want to go through that process because yes. they're weak. And I hate saying that about people, but yeah. the reality is like, like we have people that, that will put their nose to the grindstone as they say, and they will dig and they will scratch and they will claw and they will work to, yeah. to figure out what it is that they're trying to understand. There's people that want to be told what to do and they think that's sufficient and they think that gives them understanding and then the ability to repeat it, which yeah. is wrong, which is wrong. Yeah. It's like the only people that, that should be able to express these things are the people that have invested in it to a great degree, right? Sure. Because there's, the, there's too much superficiality and there's too much just pure repetition without understanding to sift through, which is why you should keep your consumption to a minimum Yeah, <laughs> in narrow, my mind. Narrow your scope. Yeah. yeah. Narrow your scope. Yeah. Okay. So these next five are real lightning round questions. That wasn't a lightning round. Oh, man. It's kind of felt okay. like right. real lightning round starting gotcha. now. Gotcha. Okay. And this will be fun too. How long is the current list of dirty words these days? How many dirty <laughs> words are there now in I'm the in vocabulary? The, I'm, in the, I'm in the 20s. I'm in really? the 20s. Does yeah. somebody have a running list? Chris Wickes might have something that approximates that. Chris um, Wickes would. I don't keep an official list. It just – it. but it, you, you look at the – I think the last intensive had 17 on it and it's okay. been a while since I've been able to do one. So it's expanded a little bit, right? Okay. Yeah. I might they're, ask, they're not all I might useless. Ask they're just not helpful. Come on, man. I wanted to train my core. Oh, my I want to train my core. The C word. Make sure I use the a C- neutral C- spine. Yeah. You got to be careful. I call the C word spine. and the F word and things like that. People yeah. misunderstand what I'm actually talking about. I'm yeah. sure they do. <laughs> Okay, number two, the best Van Halen performance you ever saw was. Oh Jesus! Okay, so the reunion tour with Sammy, and I believe it was two thousand and four. Brother Jim and I, we got special tickets that allowed us to go backstage, sit in for sound check. We were right in front, like literally up against the stage, directly in front of Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. Sammy was like, obviously singing right in front of us. Coolest experience though, because I'm the Sammy Hagar side of things. Right. Yeah, so, I, sure. so I've been, I followed Sammy a few times. Sammy Hagar has poured the gorgeous one, my wife, a drink of tequila during a show. That's how close we were. That's um, epic. <laughs> yeah. That's like, awesome. Yeah. It was kind of neat. So, so those are hard to beat. I was actually on stage at one point with my brother and his wife. And so they had a bleacher system that was around Sammy. And so we were actually on stage for the show. So again, oh like gosh. I've had like like three killer experiences that are Sammy related, but the Van Halen one, the reunion tour thing might not have been the best Eddie Van Halen that we had, but it was such a cool experience. experience um, it was yeah. worth the hearing loss that I deal with from that show. So yeah, yeah. I had a great time. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Number three, whether people know this or not, you're an avid singer now, man. You're really killing it. Yes. Dude, I can't wait. I can't wait until the full set happens here soon. But out of all the songs that you've added to your list now, what's your favorite song to perform? Oh, Jesus. So hard. The song that I always open with, which is, it's such a great song, is a song 
book called How Long by Ace, which is from 1974, mm. I believe. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Paul Carrick was the lead vocalist for Ace. And it's the song they opened with because it's a great song. And it's sort of like a war- it's a great warm up song because the because I have a pretty decent upper register, right? Uh, but to try to do it without warming up is pretty bad. We did Ready for Love this past year, and that was awesome. Did Hey Baby from Ted Nugent, which <laughs> I never thought I would ever sing in public. Yeah, that was awesome. That was great. And then I did uh, Girls Got Rhythm, me ACDC. But yep. I think the one that gets most requested was Sweet Child of Mine. Yeah. Like I got yelled at. Well, because everybody I, knows that song, right? Yeah, but I didn't sing it this past year and I got yelled at like by several, oh. like in my face screaming, I can't believe you didn't do Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> yeah. Because wow. again, I do have the upper register to sing it. So. Yeah. yeah. It's been fun to watch, dude. It's been well, really fun. Like this year was it's been fun to do. the best one yet. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. been fun to do. I don't know where you find time to do it, but. It's nighttime. Oh. Yeah, nighttime. <laughs> it's nighttime. Okay, well, that's called children right now. Maybe, exactly. I, maybe I, in a few years. Yeah. Okay, this is my Doug Kachijan call out. Oh, what's your favorite '80s movie? Oh, Die Hard. Eighty-eight, mm. nineteen eighty-eight. Yeah, nineteen eighty-eight. Greatest actor of our time, how, Bruce Willis. How's that a Christmas movie? Just for the record, how is I it mean, a Christmas like, movie? It's, how it's like, but it's not like. Well, Bruce like Willis would say that it's or, not a Christmas movie; it's a Bruce Willis movie. But the reality is it took place during the Christmas holiday. So, Because there was a Christmas party at Nakatomi Plaza. Okay. By the way, the drummer for the band that I sing with has been in that building. There you go. How's really? that? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty it's cool. It's not the Nakatomi building, but he has been in there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Last but not least, what's next for Bill Hartman? Okay. So, like I said, trying to bring this to – a little bit bigger scope, I think. Like, make it a little bit more understandable, make it a little bit more accessible. I think that's the next goal. You know, we got to get, obviously, we've got a home base problem that will get resolved yes. soon. It yes. We'll get that out of the way, and then we'll hit the ground running, and we'll bring the intensive back with gangbusters. And so it'll be better. It'll be a much better version of it. I've got 20 of them under my belt. So I've had, you know, 20... 20 opportunities for questions and structure and things like that. And so that's where we'll go. Yeah. yeah. I love it. And man. we'll just keep doing this stuff with IFSU. I'll keep doing the stuff with the uh, reconsider podcast and the recon program before the program, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Give opportunities for, you know, put it to use, put this stuff to use in a general format as well. Yeah. Well, point being here, there's a lot of entry points now, right? Yeah, like depending so. on where you're at, what yeah. you've learned, you know, there's a lot of different places where you can jump in and start learning about this right. stuff. So, yeah. Bill, man, as always, great catching up with you, even though I just saw you earlier today. <laughs> great catching up with you live for everybody else's benefit. Yeah. Where can my listeners find out more about you? Okay. Well, so let me tell a quick story. Yeah. Instagram deleted my account. I don't know how many yes. months ago that was. So I had to switch that. So it's Bill underscore Hartman underscore PT on Instagram. So if you were following me before and you wonder where the heck I've been, it's like, I'm still there. <laughs> it just had to be under a different name. They gave me no reason and would not allow me to re-up. So reclaim your space. Yeah. So, so there, that's stuff that comes out on a relatively daily basis during the work week. And then the YouTube channel, Bill Hartman PT on YouTube, the IFAST University 
dot com, which is us doing yep. our thing. So we got a really cool group of people on there. So if you're a trainer or a coach or a therapist, it's a great place to, to work with other people, share ideas, cases, strategies, etc. I do one-on-one mentorships that you can somehow track me down through <laughs> channels. I would suggest you get on the mentorship list through the BillHartmanPT.com. So at the end of any of the blog posts, you can get on the email list for that because you'll get first notice of any time we do an intensive or it'll allow you to absorb some regular communication there as well. Let me think. Where am I missing? Reconsider. I'll make Reconsider sure podcast, which is which we post on my YouTube channel, but also to all of your favorite podcast listening apps as well. Or plat- cool. Those are platforms, aren't they? They're not apps. Platforms, They're platforms. It's all the same. Yeah. I don't know. And at so first it was subscribes, subscribers, now it's followers. I don't know. They're always yeah. just changing the lingo. So yeah. it's yeah. all good, man. I'll make sure I get all those in the yeah. show notes. So wherever you want to follow Bill, follow him there. Bill, thanks again, man. This is great. Well, thank you. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode of the Physical Prep Podcast. Really hope you enjoyed it. My goal going in was to give you a general overview of Bill Hartman's model, and I hope that we did that. There's so much ground to cover when you start thinking about archetypes, configurations, the impact of feet, and the gait cycle, table testing. I mean, he's talked about so many different things, so it was really hard to try and whittle that down and figure out what's most important, but I hope if you're new to Bill's system or Bill's model. This gives you some insights into how he looks at movement and hopefully spurs you on. I think arguably the most important part of this show is if you are interested, finding a question, finding something that's really important to you, whether it's knee pain, back pain, improving somebody's squat, understanding table tests, find that one thing that's really exciting for you. Start going to his YouTube right now, going through all the videos that he's recorded on those topics so you can really start to understand and grasp the robustness of his model and how far he's fleshed this out because I think it's really, really powerful. So if you enjoyed today's episode, one small favor to ask, if you're not already subscribed to the show, please go and do that right now. Wherever you consume podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon Store, YouTube Podcasts, wherever you consume shows, go there right now, hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.